The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is a president of Etherton & Associates, um, a regular guest on the show. We talk about all things procurement, all things world events. And today I think our focus is really what's going on in the larger world out there and its nexus to a relationship with procurement policy and the National Defense Authorization Act. So first of all, Moshe, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back, Roger. It is a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion and, um, you know, the nexus between procurement and, you know, world politics, events, what's going on. So let's start there first with how are current events, which seem to change very rapidly these days, even more so than I can ever remember, what is going on out there and, and how are people looking at, you know, current events? So there is a lot going on out there and on the geopolitical or the national security stage, Perhaps we can bucket it into four trends that are occurring. One, which is very much in the news, is the China challenge, or as the Department of Defense says, China is the pacing threat, and we can talk about that. The other one that is also very much in the news is Russia and Ukraine. The third would be the Middle East, and the fourth, I would suggest, is the emergence of public opinion as a battleground in geopolitical conflict. And we can get into all of these, but what is striking about this environment is the level of activity and the level of threat in all of these in a way that is unprecedented in decades, because in reality, we're talking about significant conflict or potential conflict in three completely different regions of the world, in the Pacific in China, in an active war in the European theater, and an active war in the Middle Eastern theater. And the United States has not faced such a three-pronged threat in a single time, let alone the other challenges that are still in that milieu, like cybersecurity. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we unpack these things and go down through the four, uh, four areas? First of all, just the China challenge and pacing threat, how has that and how it does it continue to shape, you know, the department's approach and congressional approach to procurement, the defense industrial base, investments, all those things? Sure. So China, if you had to summarize the fiscal year 2024 National Defense Authorization Act in a single word, it would be fair to say China. Because many of the provisions, many of the policies, many of the conversations are focused about on China. And it's not just the NDIA. You have the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. You have the Quad with Japan, Australia, India, and the United States, that burgeoning relationship. It's all over the place. And it is very much what we're doing. Even Trade Representatives Office is very much focused on China, be it tariffs, be it exclusion of sources, and Huawei. So it is really the primary focus. 
But China is inextricably linked to the other events that are happening, including Russia and the Middle East. So, for example, there is no question that China is looking at Ukraine. There's no question that China is looking at the Middle East for lessons, lessons both in technology and developments in war fighting and what is occurring, as well as how the United States and Europe will respond. So many people argue that how the U.S. responds to Ukraine, whether we do a national security supplemental that provides more support to Ukraine, and to what extent we maintain our support for Israel, will be a message to China. Because if we don't support Ukraine and we waver in our support of Israel, the argument goes, China will see this and say, if they will not even support, if the United States will not even support their allies by providing resources, then if we, China, make a move on Taiwan in in the next uh, window of five years or so, they're for sure not going to provide U.S. troops to Taiwan. And that might be a factor of calculus. However, if the United States provides strong support to Ukraine and Israel, then that might give a lot of pause to China. So that's one important aspect. But there's, I think, a more important one, which is what Ukraine has done and that Israel has perhaps exacerbated is woken up the West even more than COVID to the challenges of supply chain and industrial basin sources. And what we are seeing now is even though the United States is struggling with budget, and even if the agreement that recently has been reached is is implemented in the 24 NDA, which is about a 3.3% increase in defense spending, the rest of the world is taking more notice of that. So Germany put a, created last year a $100 billion fund for defense above their defense budget. Japan increased theirs, I think, about $50 billion. Sweden is now over 2%. Uh, Poland is increasing their defense spending. England is increasing their defense spending. Everywhere else around the world, they're increasing it and investing substantially in the industrial base. So it is waking up the West, as well as the United States, which is doing a lot in this area. And that is also a mark for China to consider because the capacity for production and deployment will be in two years from now in the West and the U.S. substantially greater. At the same time that many people are arguing that China is peaking, both because of population rate and their economy and the bubble in real estate and the diversification away from China to Malaysia and India and other sources, Mexico, for production, and that is having a drag on their economy, which arguably means we're talking about a window of five years that where China has the best opportunity for all of these interrelated issues. And then the last interrelated issue to throw out there, putting cyber aside, is what the Houthis have shown by firing missiles at shipping is that a small group, in essence, in a country like Yemen has the ability to really create havoc with the global economy in a way that economically and technologically can never have been done before. And the response is so much more expensive, million dollar tomahawk responses. And that's not always what we use, but it's a real challenge. So all of these are so complicated and interrelated. If I was China and I wanted to attack Taiwan in three years from now, I try to create a war in Europe, create a war in the Middle East, distract everyone, have them send all their equipment there, and then there's less to respond to a conflict in China. Right. So when you say there's like a five-year window, perhaps, given the dynamics of the Chinese economy, the supply chain, the the industrial capacity in the West, and that sort of thing, does the fact that China, you know, some people 
feel already it's past its peak. You know, they're, you know, they're having those significant issues in their economy, you know, with the real estate. Do you think that creates incentive for Chinese, the communist Chinese party to act now? Or does it create caution on their part? Do you have any sense of what people think? I would suggest that to the extent that there is serious contemplation of an armed effort against Taiwan, under that assumption, one would have to think that in the next five years would be their window. And that echoes what a number of analysts and uh, senior military officers in the United States have suggested, that there's a, there's a window there, precisely because of what you're talking about. Because the current data indicates that it's not clear that the Chinese economy will ever eclipse the U.S. economy based on current growth rates. And if anything, we are going to start increasing our capacity faster. So there's there's no question about that with the CHIPS Act and all of these other things that are going on. Parenthetically, though, Europe could be a growing challenge because recently one of the senior members of NATO suggested that Russia could invade a European NATO country in the next four to five years as well if they are successful in Ukraine. Right. Didn't more more than one European leader has stated that as a possibility. And that actually is like, let's turn a little bit now to Ukraine. Um, Well, actually, we're almost up on the break, Moshe. Um, Let's hold that. And when we come back, we can talk about we'll go through all three of those. Next one is, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Europe, then Middle East, and then sort of public opinion as kind of setting the stage. Um, my guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's the president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He's the president of Etherton and Associates. We're talking about geopolitics, how it shapes the NDA, or how it has shaped the 2024 NDAA. And, um, you know, Moshe, I know what the end of the first segment I talked about going on to Russia. But first, let's let's do this. Let's connect you know, our discussion of China and where things are with the 2024 NDAA and you know, what's going on, what's, trans- what's in it responding to China, and maybe even perhaps you know, some other things that's going on in the Hill that are directly related to China. Absolutely. So we see two or three big trends in the NDIA relating to China, given the backdrop that we just talked about. The first one is the industrial base and building up our industrial base. The second one is excluding sources and dealing with supply chain. And the third one is tackling potential vulnerabilities. And we'll do those very quickly. So talking about our own industrial base. There were efforts of, for example, expanding Defense Production Act Title III to include the UK and Australia to to ensure that we are able to grow our industrial base a lot faster. That would be an example of our effort to respond to the China threat. When it comes to supply chain and visibility and security, there's, for example, Section 842, which is a demonstration on contested logistics in the Pacific region because of the concern of the challenge of logistics there or pilot programs for supply chain visibility because of the concern of Chinese parts and Chinese manufacturers in the defense industrial base. There are multiple provisions about that. And then the third one we talked about, we also talked about excluding sources. For example, there's a section 154 prohibiting the procurement of battery technology from certain Chinese companies or section 244 
prohibiting procurement of chemical materials from certain countries, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And then the last thing is there was included in this NDA, the American Drone Security Act, which prohibited the use of drones from China and uh, under other circumstances, other sources, which ties directly with what came out a few weeks ago from CIS and the Department of Justice saying that use of Chinese drones by companies is a cybersecurity threat. So you see all of this language. We're talking about over a dozen provisions in the NDAA focusing on all of those China issues that we discussed. So the the use of Chinese drones is you know that what the American Drone Act um, does it, it it impacts the government's ability to purchase drones or does it go beyond that into the private sector and private sector use of drones? So it prevents the agencies and not all agencies there are exceptions from procuring those drones or using drones that have these Chinese parts that could communicate in them, which has a follow-on impact to industry. Right. And does it become an issue for private companies in the sense that, you know, they all have shareholders, they all have to report and stuff, and to the extent there's extensive use of Chinese drones at some point, do you think that gets flagged as an investment risk in a certain sense? for those companies, perhaps? So it, it flows in two very clear ways to industry. The first one is raising the awareness that these drones can have cybersecurity threats, which alerts companies that beyond their work with the government, they want to address these concerns. The second one is if they have work with the government it will potentially challenge their ability to work with the government. One is because they need all the visibility of their supply chains, and it is very hard to bifurcate providing drones to government and civilian, number one. But number two is because we've seen in the past the government say, we won't buy drones and we won't buy from companies that use drones, for example. That can come down the pike, so you really need to clean out those supply chains to ensure in the future regulation won't knock you out. Okay. So it has ramifications well beyond just the standard procurement, you know, don't buy this, right? Yeah, I see that. Just real quickly before we turn to Russia, um, Ukraine, Europe, um, you know, I guess we're we're, we're going across the globe today, Moshe. Um, You know, just the Joint Committee on China um, and what we could expect potentially in the future, just a couple thoughts on that. Yes. So Congressman Gallagher is the chair on the Select Committee on Strategic Competition with China in the House of Representatives. They have been uh, very active in all of these areas. And in fact, there are a number of provisions like the American Drone Security Act, as an example, that were amendments offered by Congressman Gallagher. And that subcommittee or the Select Committee is continuing its work And there is no doubt that they will continue to look at this issue and propose more amendments and draft legislation to be proposed in the next NDAA, if not a standalone China bill, which a number of people have argued for, to address these issues. The big question is, where do these issues fall out? Does it fall out more in strict analysis of security for the United States, or does it fall out in more of a disaggregation or a decoupling. 
And we'll see this play out in a couple of areas, but I'll talk about one area in specific to look specifically at, which is the outbound investment. Right? There's a lot of effort in Congress to have almost a reverse CFIUS to look at outbound investments of the U.S. into other countries, specifically with focuses like China. And while language to that effect was dropped in the FY24 NDAA, that in no way, shape or form should imply that that issue is over. There are strong supporters of that in Congress, and that will be continuing debate on the China issue. Okay, so we will see some more, think, America Drone Act and additional actions potentially in the next year. Does it make a difference as it's seen election year? Does that mean people want to out anti-China each other or how how does that work? I think that is actually an astute observation. If anything, it will only add to the impetus to be anti-China because I'm not sure anybody wins an election in the United States uh, running on a let's support China platform. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's turn to, we got a couple minutes left. Um, uh, Let's turn to, uh, to Russia, Ukraine, Europe, on just what's going on there and how that manifests in, you know, procurement policy or just the NDA and, you know, government defense industrial base generally. Absolutely. One thing it is really driven is this, as Bill LaPlante under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment likes to say, focus on production, 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 right? Both building up the capacity, just the raw capacity of being able to produce the number of drones, the number of missiles, the number of anti-aircraft. And then the second is the speed of production. And those are different, right? One is capacity and one is how fast it takes you to do, which is the second one is much more tied to your supply chains and your resources. And, And that is substantially being driven or to a large degree being driven by Ukraine and exacerbated by conflicts in Israel. So, as the administration has said, a lot of the national security supplemental they're looking for is to restock the supplies of the U.S. for things that have been shipped over already. So that's a big thing. However, I would add a note of caution, which is, well, production is critical. There's No one's going to challenge that. Maintenance is also critical and perhaps an overlooked issue. And what I mean by that is it doesn't matter how many of something you produce, for example, planes, if you can't keep the planes flying or ships, if you can't keep the ships afloat. And we see this both in the Air Force and the Navy recently. The Air Force has struggled for a significant amount of time in maintaining the ideal readiness rates for their air wings. And a few weeks ago, there were some articles that came out about the Navy who had a target of 70, I believe, warships afloat at any time ready to be in an operation, but they're more in the mid-50s range. And if we can't get the readiness rates up, it almost doesn't matter, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it almost doesn't matter how much you produce. On some level, the raw numbers go up if you increase the throughput and the process for O&M and maintenance, which is, as it turns out, oddly enough, where uh, artificial intelligence plays could play a huge role in the Department of Defense, but that's a whole other topic. Well, yeah, well, we could do a whole show on that. and we, Maybe we will, Moshe. With regard to that logistics, you know, maintenance, readiness, you kind of, I guess, did mention, you know, you mentioned artificial intelligence. Part of that, I, I mean, it sounds like that's a multifaceted challenge. Would you think it does involve production, right? Because you've got to produce spare parts, I assume. 
then it's management of those spare parts. And then it's having the people available to actually do, you know, whatever needs to be done to maintain the, 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 the product uh, or the, you know, the ship or the, the plane. Are there investments being made there? Does the NDA acknowledge this or, you know, it's, that's, that's outside like the defense production act, even to a certain extent in terms of a challenge. Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah. So it, it definitely does. The NDAA absolutely talks about AI in all these capacities and trying to build the infrastructure for AI with the CDAO, uh, having procurement authority and extending that authority. Absolutely. And, and the logistics a pilot that we talked about, for example. However, I would suggest that it is, as you mentioned, a very multifaceted construct, because if the ultimate goal is readiness, then you need to use AI for predictive maintenance. So you know when things need to come in before they break down and how many parts you're going to need and where those parts are and when you have to order them and where the people are. To be able to do all of that with AI, you need good data systems that track everything. And that is a fundamental problem, which cries out for the need of technology modernization or digital transformation, because without the baseline IT digital foundation, AI doesn't work, readiness doesn't increase. And I would suggest perhaps we have a little bit more work to do in that IT modernization, digital transformation area. We haven't built that framework yet. Yeah, the integrity of the data are common data sets that are utilized to be able to analyze it effectively is all part of that equation as well. Yeah, and it is all about historical information, right, and being able to analyze that data to figure out where the trend is. Well, and and pulling the whole idea of the audit, the part of the point of the whole DoD audit is what parts do we have where? Do we really have those 1,200 parts in uh, Germany for the plane that we need, or do we not? Without that information, predictive maintenance doesn't matter because you fly the plane to get fixed, and lo and behold, we thought we had it there, but we don't. Right. Right. Well, you know, Moshe, we're up on the break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the, yeah, I guess the European theater, so to speak, or European, uh, what's going on there in terms of uh, Russia and Ukraine and uh, moving forward and just how the U.S. is looking at things from a procurement policy perspective moving forward. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. We're talking about geopolitics, how it shapes uh, U.S defense policy uh, writ large, but also more specifically in the procurement arena. And Moshe, when we you know took the break, we we're talking about a little bit about logistics and what it all means and lessons learned from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Your sense on, you know, what are some other things that are, the folks have learned from that or how the U.S. is responding when it sort of looks at our capabilities and what and even europe from europe's perspective as well sure so one lesson is our stockpiles aren't enough they burn through so quickly so we need the production and the industrial base capability 
But in the NDAA, we see a lot of the other things that were learned and efforts to try to solve them or the beginning efforts to get the data we need to solve. And a lot of that revolves around how and to what extent we do and can work with our allies. So, for example, there is this great section in the NDAA, Section 810, that talks about updating guidance on exportability features for future programs. Or in other words, as we're building our future major defense acquisition programs, let's start thinking in early on or improve our guidance on how we early on spec into them exportability features so we can export these items, which is great for the U.S. economy, but as well for interoperability with allies and making these more attractive to our allies to be able to buy. At the same time, also, we see Section 1242. So a couple of years ago, actually in the uh, 23 NDAA, there was a section that gave specific procurement authorities for Ukraine or to restock U.S. supplies that were provided to Ukraine or for allies who have been supporting Ukraine with uh, equipment. And that's great. In this year's NDAA, those authorities were extended to Taiwan and Israel, the exact regions that we have been talking about. Congress saying, we have that challenge with production, we have that challenge with flexibility, we have that challenge in delivering, let's start using these authorities potentially for other areas as well. And then the third, and perhaps one of the more nettlesome ones, is FMS, foreign military sales. FMS notoriously can take very long, and there's a current proposed sale, I believe, to Taiwan that has been dragging on for more than four years, perhaps six years. It shouldn't take that long to get equipment to our allies. And that can be very difficult and challenging in these global times. So there are multiple efforts in this NDAA to try to get to that those issues, including a pilot program for putting an advisor in the combatant commands on foreign military sales and security assistance to the combatant commander, and efforts to improve the workforce on foreign military sales. So they're trying to do all of those things. Right. Well, that's that's all well and good. Why does it take so long to execute on foreign military sales? I have no idea. It gets stuck in a lot of things. I don't know. So but you're telling way... me it's it's the bureaucracy. That's what you're telling me here. Well, it's definitely the bureaucracy. There's definitely the bureaucracy and a little bit of politics. But it raises a bigger question, if I may. So very recently, the Department of Defense put out their industrial-based strategy, their first ever, ever industrial-based strategy. And it had four goals or principles. It's an excellent read, and, and people should definitely do that. But in the 90s, under the Clinton administration, there was a construct of win-hold-win. The idea was you win one war while you're holding in another. You have just enough equipment and troops to not lose that one, but you hold. And then when you've won the first one, you can shift the troops over and then win again. So it's win-hold simultaneously and then win the other conflict. That was the plan in the 90s with the shrinking defense budget because we couldn't fight two wars at the same time was the theory. It raises the question today, what strategy do we need in an NDS? Is it win supply win? Do we need to be able to fight a conflict appear 
conflict at the same time that we are supplying allies fighting their own conflicts. So maybe we need a win supply strategy today. Right. That's almost like yeah, what the 90s, like that's like one and a half wars or something. <laughs> um, right, for ours and other people's, right. What is, right. What is the goal? Just for us? Or is it to really be an arsenal of democracy? Right. And what does the, you know, the DOD defense industrial base um, policy look like in that regard? Does it look like win supply win or, or is that yet to be determined? So the industrial base policy use and follows on the national defense strategy. The national defense strategy did not articulate this kind of construct, but these issues are very new. I mean, there was not a hot conflict in the Middle East at the time. Ukraine, I think, was still very new. But the industrial base strategy focuses on four issues, supply chains, private sector workforce readiness. We need to have the private sector capability for these search capacities, flexible acquisitions, like multi-year procurements, which is one strategy that is being taken by the Department of Defense to help get the private sector investment for the industrial base and economic deterrence because of the economic challenges. And that includes protect against cyber attacks and use the U.S. trade power on the global stage. But the only thing I want to add, though, is is DOD's effort to use multi-year procurement to help accomplish these goals. And there was a provision in the NDAA that said when you consider a multi-year procurement award, you now legally have the authority that one of the factors for considering that is the industrial base. In the past, it had to be significant savings, which was generally determined as or uh, understood to be 10%. Now that's not the only basis. Now the value to the industrial base and its resilience is a factor in multi-year procurement. And then we can also use multi-year procurement for minerals now. Right. So as a one thing about multi-year procurement is like, it's great to have multi-year authority, but it's even better to have uh, the funding behind it. Are those connected or disconnected from a congressional perspective? Well, it's all connected, but multi-year procurement means you don't actually have to have all the funding on day one. I, I understand that. My point is, though, that it requires discipline and consistent investment over time on the part of leadership to take advantage of that multi-year authority at the end of the day. I think you are raising perhaps the most interesting and least spoken about question in all of these efforts, which is the long-term appetite to maintain them. And perhaps let me give you an example. With a story in Afghanistan, we spent a lot of money on building roads and building bridges and building schools, but did not spec into a budget long-term maintenance for those. So what ultimately happened is a number of the projects just fell apart because after they were built, there was no resource for sustaining those things. And that's the big question now, like with the CHIPS Act, we build these fabs, right? We build this excess capacity. So that's great. We have it next year, we have the year after, but what will be the appetite to maintain that infrastructure and maintain those multi-year procurements three, four, five years down, six, seven years down the line when this no longer is the issue du jour, as it were? I think it's a, it's a great question and a huge challenge. 
I always, because you stop and think about it, it's if you want to maintain capacity, it, that costs money at the end of the day. And then the other aspect of it you hear from companies all the time, whether it's in healthcare or whatever, is if you want us to, if you want us to produce stuff domestically or in a more um, aligned, let's say, supply chain, you know, of allies or whatever, that also increases costs. And will the government recognize that in terms of how it, you know, invests and supports and funds, you know, operations moving forward. And even if they do for one year, does it, do they maintain it at the end of the day? Some of these things, it's such a multifaceted, it's going to evolve for some capabilities, which your DOD is going to rely on, right? Whether commercial capabilities, it could require, you know, tax policy, you know, funding commitments over long periods of time, you know, training of a workforce. It's just, it's such a multifaceted thing. Um, that'd be like, almost like maybe they need a select committee just on that, perhaps. I don't know. What, what do you think, Moshe? I think that, that would be an excellent idea because there, I, there are creative ways to try to tackle some of these things, particularly with a focus on creating this excess capacity that when it is not needed being used by companies to sell into the private sector, but that would assume that DOD would allow that to happen. And some of the uh, restrictions of procurement might be a barrier to that. So for example, if, if uh, the U S government helps build a chips facility in the U S because we need it for national security purposes, if that facility can't sell into the commercial markets for a variety of reasons, maybe because of domestic content or maybe because of, you know, excluding of sources or whatever it is for the raw materials, then that doesn't become economically viable. And that would mean that the U.S. government has to pay even more to keep it afloat for that capacity. If there are ways to get around that so that these entities or companies can maintain that excess capacity through the commercial markets, then it may be more economically viable, but that might require DOD to change some policies or Congress to change some statutes and for sure to change some culture and mentality. Yeah, and it well, another aspect of it could be how closely we cooperate or co-invest with allies like UK, Australia, or whoever, you know, moving forward, maybe that leveraging, you know, resources across um, allies. You know, I know we do it already to a certain extent, but, you know, Thinking about that from a strategic perspective, moving forward, are there opportunities there? But Moshe, we're up on the break. When we come back, we'll talk about, we'll finally get to the Middle East maybe a little bit, and then public opinion to close out the show. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Atherton and Associates. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is a president of Etherton and Associates, and we're taking a look at geopolitics, all that is transpiring across the globe and how it's shaping defense policy, defense policy towards the industrial base and defense procurement policy in the NDAA. And Moshe, you know, let's this segment, let's talk a bit about the Middle East um, and the conflict there and how that is impacting, you know, how the Department of Defense and Congress are looking at defense policy, budget, and uh, procurement. Absolutely. And in and of itself, if there was nothing else going on in the world, 
this might not, what's going on in the Middle East might not be as important an issue. It's an important issue, don't get me wrong in any way, but it just exacerbates some of the things that we are seeing, which really drive home some of the points. And let me give some examples, right? The importance of coalition, right? With the Houthi attacks on shipping, what the United States sought to do and has done somewhat successfully is created a multinational effort to protect shipping uh, with an Arab country and Britain and uh, I believe Australia and some other countries involved in this effort. And that highlights the importance of working with allies against these threats. That's one example that has been highlighted here. I think a second one is the fluidity of geopolitical challenges and how they could so quickly evolve and occur at any time. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was perhaps not completely unexpected. They had done it before with the Crimean area, but wasn't really expected. And then what happened with the Hamas attack on Israel, for sure at that scale was not expected. It drives home the fluidity and the evolution of threats and challenges and how quickly things can spiral out of control around the world everywhere. And the other thing it shows is how all of these conflicts are different or potential conflicts are different. China, which would be very much sea-oriented, the Ukraine, which is against uh, the Ukrainians against a larger Russian military, Israel against a terrorist organization in a very thick urban environment. These are all different. It's very difficult to be able to respond to all of these. And then the last one, which really was highlighted uh, by what's going on in the Middle East, but also we see strains of in Ukraine, is the role of public opinion. Because that definitely shapes global opinion, it shapes U.S. opinion, and it's both in the Middle East and in Ukraine. There is a fair amount of opposition in the United States now against aid to Ukraine, and that could hold things up. And how intertwined these issues are politically. So there's a lot of conversation about a national security supplemental, which would provide a bulk of the funding in the supplemental to Ukraine, but also to Israel, as well as uh, some money for the Pacific and Taiwan and the shipbuilding industrial base in AUKUS. But that is tied up in a political issue of border, particularly policy over border. And that shows how complicated these issues are and how they get entwined in politics. And perhaps this is a huge lesson here and how what happens domestically, politically, can have a huge impact on our national security globally, because if this national security supplemental doesn't pass because of border issues, which in and of itself, border issues are a national security issue. I'm not saying that they're not. Um, I don't mean to imply that at all. But that could have tremendous impacts on the war in Ukraine and what's and the war with Israel and Hamas, and it could impact Chinese views of U.S. commitment to allies, and it all ties in together. It's this Gordian knot. Right. So, and my question, I guess, there is, too, is adversaries see all that, and they try to play roles in public opinion, too, to try to leverage that in a certain sense is that is that fair to say i mean i mean it's absolutely right because they're playing the same game you know russia would very much like to divide and conquer allies 
You know, China would very much like to divide and conquer allies politically, and they've tried to do it economically and with Huawei and other places as well. So this is a larger issue. Right. And it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. It's yet to be determined. You know, just I want to get you got a, a you know about a minute and a half left. I, want, I just want to get your final sort of thoughts on the overall NDAA and the journey sort of Congress seems to be on because it has evolved, right? It's you know in a lot of ways, and it, you know the increasing and continued focus on the industrial base does that continue? Do they is do you see the long term sort of commitment? To consistency and supporting that. I mean, obviously things can change um, and we could wake up and everybody's getting along with everybody, but, it, you know, that's the, the likelihood of that is <laughs> uh, next to zero. So um, big picture, the where does the 2024 NDA take us on this journey and what do you see moving forward? Yeah, the 24 NDA definitely took us on the journey on a focus on allies in a way that it really hasn't in the past, an even more robust journey on industrial base and on supply chain visibility. It will continue to focus on those issues because these conflicts or potential conflicts are not going away anytime soon. The NDIA and particularly the Armed Services Committee are perhaps the idealized version today of bipartisanship, which is growing more difficult in today's times, but the NDA has passed for more than 60 years consecutively. Generally not on time, but it has passed. So you don't have to be overly optimistic to believe that this will continue. These themes are likely to continue. And as the evolution of cyberspace and space force and conflicts and industrial base continue, these same themes are very likely to continue. Right. And on that note, Moshe, uh, we have to wrap up the show. I want to thank my guest today, Moshe Schwartz. He is president of Ethogen Associates. I'm Roger Walder, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.